listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston, and this is episode number 78. That's right, 78, kids. It's January 24th in the year of our Lord, 2021, and uh, really glad to be here, as always. Love getting behind this mic. Now, this week, I kind of spent some time thinking, well, what is it I want to talk about? What's going on in the world? You kind of keep an eye out for brand stories, a little news here and there, maybe some business shenanigans and whatnot. And then I'll jump into kind of a deeper, uh, maybe philosophical, political, theological, esoteric topic. But today, I don't really have anything for you in the way of branding or business news or news in general. It's not that there's nothing going on in the world. We had a we had a presidential inauguration on the twentieth. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening. Uh, that that president, that uh, Joseph Robinette Biden, uh, proceeded to jump in the hot seat and uh, slash off a bunch of executive orders. Uh, kind of funny, by the way. I said I'm not going to cover news, but just real quick, kind of funny to see <laughs> the aftermath of of those signings because. You know, Black Lives Matter tweeted the other day. Maybe we made, uh, maybe maybe the Democrats are using us. You know, they. I don't know what that was all about. There are a lot of uh, feminists and, and women's rights groups upset now uh, with some of the transgender legislation that Biden is, uh, by a stroke of a pen, uh, put into play. It's not really legislation. Uh, he's not a lawmaker. He's not a congressman or a senator. But um, by executive order, by fiat presidential fiat putting into place some things that are giving uh, men that are uh, walking around in society as women, um, you know, a leg up, as it were, access to the women's world. Like if you're a female competing in competitive sport, whether high school, college or professional, no, well, now you're going to be competing against men because Joe Biden wants to make it fair for all. So interesting to see some of the folks, the, the coalition, the groups, the identity groups, that supported the left already on day number one, day number two, day number three, already getting a bad taste in their mouth. Well, get ready, kids, because I got to tell you, I think I think that progressivism, I think the left is at war with itself. And you might look right now and say, my goodness, is the right in disarray? Boy, did Donald Trump really mess up that party. You had the never Trumpers, you had the Trumpers, you had the conservatives and the Republicans and the centrists and all these People, the Christians and the atheists, and what a mess. The, the, the right just got destroyed, annihilated. They were a wreck. And that may be true, might be, may not be. But I think that maybe is taking away attention from the fact that the left is in trouble. There's a war going on within progressivism, and it's been going on for a long time. And we're getting to see this thing play out. You know, a lot of people voted for Joe Biden thinking, oh, yeah, he's on the left, but he's an old school Democrat. He understands how the country's supposed to work. Joe's more of a centrist. Boy, he's a golly shucks, golly gee good guy. Uh, he's clean cut. You know, he's got those little colloquialisms that he loves to throw out there. His little stories about corn pop and little black children rubbing the hairs on his arms and legs. What a wonderful guy that Joe Biden is. And I think there's been this idea that he's a safe bet. And I get it. I get it. When you, if you don't like Donald Trump, if you, if you found him troublesome, and I don't know who wouldn't, because for the last four years, from the moment he took oath of office, the left has been screaming through every organ it possibly can. And I don't mean physical organ, although those are included. I'm talking about the media, the arts, comedy, you know, any institution, golly gee, the Vatican even, just everybody opposed this guy from the minute he got in office. And that could mean a couple things. It could mean that, oh, goodness, he's the worst thing in the world. It could just be, my gosh, they're trying to save us from this monster, this Hitler, 
that wants to take over the world. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, Trump and his presidency, my goodness, he was rounding up the Jews. He was uh, putting people in ghettos, et cetera. I mean, the worst you could throw at Trump is that he took over the Obama era uh, engagement, if you will, of um, Mexicans uh, in the border. And yeah, they didn't solve the problem, but he didn't institute any of that stuff. Um, but, you know, you could take it as the, as, as the world trying to save us from something horrible. You could also take it from uh, the perspective of like, okay, well, what's going on? And uh, me thinkest thou doth protest too much. Why are, the, why are they protesting so much? Why are they screaming? What is it about Trump that upsets them so much? Could, could there be something else? But this is not a conspiracy theory podcast, although uh, it'd be fun. It'd be fun. We're going to talk about narrative today, but interesting, all kinds of stuff going on in the news and uh, I think that those that voted for Biden, and it's already the cracks are showing, they're going to start thinking, well, hold on a second. This was really a vote against Trump. I didn't really vote. I don't love Joe Biden. I just thought he was kind of a safe bet. Old Joe was vice president under Obama. Things weren't that bad, were they? Well, I think there's a war in the midst of progressivism, and specifically it's manifesting itself in the Democrat Party. And we've been seeing it going on uh, for quite a while. You've got the squad, the AOCs, and the Ilhan Omars, and some of the other folks in that group, the hardcore leftist progressives. We're talking Marxists, uh, economic Marxists, ideological, cultural, social Marxists, people that, that believe that, that you have to belong to a group, that you get your identity from the group, and that your either virtue or vice comes from your involvement and membership in that group, that you should be punished, that it's all about raw power. It's not about truth. It's not about reality. It's not about love. It's not about goodness. It's not about building a better, greater society for all. It's about the haves and the have-nots. It's about power. It's about dominations. It's about submission and oppression. That's all these uh, Marxists understand. This is postmodernism in all its glory. It's progressivism. So you've got this kind of left wing of the progressive party that wants to destroy every human institution, marriage, the arts, the economy, business, politics, everything. They want to disassemble, deconstruct it. These are the critical theorists, folks. You've been hearing about critical race theory for a while. Well, that comes from critical theory. This is the Frankfurt School. They want to deconstruct everything and reconstruct it in the ways that they see fit. They want to take thousands of years of human experience and say, well, that's all garbage. What, are, what, are, what do people know for thousands and thousands of years? My goodness, that's stupid. A mother and a father don't necessarily have to be the ideal unit to raise a child. Why the state could raise a child? Why maybe a monkey or a dog or a horse or three men can raise a child? Maybe it should be a polyamorous relationship with multiple spouses raising children. We want to reconstruct the future in our own image. We don't want to accept these outdated and burdensome ways of living. That's the critical theory. Break it all down and rebuild it in a progressive utopia. And we know from history, we know from philosophy, we know from political and economic theory that the leftist progressive vision of utopia has always and will always end in human misery and destruction of all that is good. I give you, I give you Rousseau's France. I give you China, Mao's revolution and current day China. And do not be deceived by the material opulence. Those people are not living 
with depth and fulfillment and meaning. They are hollowed out consumerists living under a totalitarian regime. I give you the Soviet Union, murdering dissenters, imprisoning them, breaking their bodies and their minds. I give you Cambodia, Vietnam. I give you all these hellholes that we know to be horrible, to be, to be horror shows for humanity, of human misery. These are the Marxists. These are the utopians. These are the totalitarians. So you have that side of the Democrat Party. And then on the other side, you've got your classical liberals. Often conservatives go, well, I'm a classical liberal. These are the progressives that believe that we can create never-ending improvement, never-ending growth, never-ending uh, abilities and solving problems and making the world better and better through this dynamism of the capitalist market. Now, I'm not anti-dynamism. I'm not anti-making money. I'm not anti-business. But if you get to the root of the capitalist free market system, it is rooted in a progressive concept that you can continue unendingly grow and improve a society by meeting the unfulfilled desires of that society's members. That's what free markets are all about. If we let people fulfill their desires, that creates markets and opportunities for people then to produce goods and services to fulfill those desires, and everyone benefits. Now, on the face, that sounds a little gross, but historically, we've focused those energies on home and hearth. We've said, look, it's okay to have this unfulfilled, unfettered uh, desire to fulfill what you want, your needs. It's, it's okay to create luxuries and, and consumer goods and everything, because people are going to focus on bettering their family's well-being. Uh, my children, my spouse, I want to get a bigger house. I want to make sure my kids go to a better school. want to move to a better zip code. want to get a new car. want to take a vacation. These are all good things. Who doesn't look upon a man and a woman who work hard to take care of their family and make sure that each successive generation has more and more material success? Who doesn't look down their nose at that? What's bad about that? But when you start breaking down the institutions that hold this together, if you've tied this thing together, and it's a bit delicate because if you lose that focus of home and hearth, if you lose that focus, and people then start saying, well, I want to fulfill other desires. Forget, I'm not having a family. I'm not getting married. I have other unfulfilled desires, and the markets should meet those desires. Well, then you've got problems. And this is where the Democrat Party is. This is the party of progressivism. And they have embraced this idea of never-ending growth, never-ending prosperity, never-ending uh, success and, and improvement. But on the other hand, they've got this faction that's trying to create a utopian, secular heaven on earth. And it's a Marxist vision. It's a materialistic, naturalistic, godless vision of a heaven on earth. And it turns out to be hell, quite frankly. And they're at war with each other. They're canceling each other. They're hating each other. They're destroying each other. And so Joe Biden, with the stroke of a pen, said, hey, we're going to let men compete with women. We're going to call them women, but they can get in on sports, et cetera. However you identify, it's all about your identity. If you identify as a man, no problem. You should be able, you should be able to represent America in the Olympics. I mean, this is kind of the logical outcome of this, where this is going to go. And the actual women, the biological women, are saying, well, hold on a second. We, we don't have what it takes to physically compete against men. Most women cannot physically compete athletics and feats of strength and whatnot against most men. Now, there are some women that can easily beat most men. There are some women that can beat some men. But on a whole, you know, men just are physically bigger. They've got more muscle mass. I mean, you've just got more when it comes to the physical contest. 
And to pretend otherwise is ridiculous. So now these women are going to have to compete against men wearing a dress. <laughs> I'm going to get canceled here, kids. So this is where it's going. So I think, I think stay tuned. I mean, yes, uh, the Republicans just got their asses handed to them in their hat. Uh, it was a tough election. It was contentious. A lot of voter fraud, you know, lots of accusations, a lot of rancor and animosity. It's very interesting how it's been reported and represented. It's like this election was so terrible, but the last one was really peaceful. The left was great. Well, I, I mean, there were, <laughs> there were mobs rioting at the inauguration in 2017, and uh, they didn't shut this Capitol down. Uh, Capitol Police, I remember, I, I have, I've seen some of this recently, you know, had to use concussion grenades to break up, the, I mean, the crowds. It was pretty ugly, pretty ugly. Uh, but you didn't hear a lot about that. That didn't get reported. Now, my goodness, you, you bunch of slobs, beer belly, and the QAnon shaman. Uh, and look, it's disgraceful what they did. Um, but this was no giant insurrection. It didn't, it didn't call for 30,000 National Guard troops to take you know, this, the Washington, D.C., and turn it into a green zone like it's Iraq or something, but this is what they've done. All right, so that's not why I'm here today. That's just the prologue. My goodness, what is today's show going to be like? That's just the warm-up, kids. But I, I want to just close this out by saying, keep an eye on the left, because I think you're going to see, whether you're in the left or not, I mean, I, I just think you're going to see a battle raging within the left. They were pretty unified against Trump. You know, when AOC and her crew, the squad got elected, they made a lot of noise and they kind of made a push to take, you know, visible control of the party. Not, th not meaning that AOC thought she could just take over the party, but they wanted to be that PR face of the, of the party. And I think they had some su success initially, but I think there were some backroom discussions where they were told, hey, shut your mouth. Your time will come, but we've got a bigger fish to fry. This isn't all about you, millennial. This isn't all about you. We got something else that we're trying to deal with. And it's the orange man, the Cheeto man. He bad. He bad. We got to destroy him. And so Pelosi was able to kind of coalesce power around fighting Trump and she and Schumer and, uh, and, and their cast of characters were able to uh, focus their rancor and ire and the nation's anxieties on President Donald Trump. And he did a pretty fine job helping them with that. He he didn't mind stirring the pot up. He didn't mind uh, throwing a little uh, wrench in there to keep the chaos going. So that was then. Now you don't have Trump. Now you've got uh, Joe Biden, Joe Robinette Biden. And um, and I think you're going to start to see some cracks in that unity. Uh, just so stay tuned. And um, we'll see where that goes. We'll report on it. My goodness, will we report on it? Because kids, if I'm nothing, I'm a journalist. You know this. After 77, now into our 78th episode, you know, probably one of the hardest hitting journalists out there uh, is, your, is, your, is your boy, Mike Gaston. So uh, let me just take my tongue out of my cheek and we'll just move along here. So I want to talk a little bit about narrative today. I've talked about narrative on the podcast before. For those of you that don't know, uh, I'm a brand and marketing strategist. I'm a consultant. I own and ran a, a, a creative agency for about 15 years. I've been consulting for almost five years. I've worked for Fortune 50 companies, Fortune 500 companies. And in my consulting, I work mainly with uh, small businesses. And when I say small, I'm not talking about the nail salon down the street, but, you know, companies between, say, 10 and 200 million. Uh, and, you know, by the, by the Small Business Administration, the government's definition, 
uh, Census Bureau and all that. I think a small business is anything under 500 employees. So I'm working with really good sized companies, often in the tens of millions of dollars, you know, a hundred, couple hundred employees. And uh, I'm helping them with strategy and branding and marketing and so on. And I get into some beyond brand and marketing and get into things like business strategy, reorganization and some of that jazz. But in my work, I deal with narrative a lot. And branding and narrative go hand in hand. Now, everybody, not everybody leverages branding, narrative, and narrative, but narrative is a very powerful tool. And when I say narrative, we're talking about story. Essentially, story is a very powerful tool. And, and I'm not going to go into I've talked about this in the past. We'll bring it up again. But suffice it to say that we are biologically, neurologically wired for story. You are designed to be sympathetic, to resonate, to want, desire, and enjoy story. And the proof of that is all around us. I mean, Hollywood alone is a, is a multi-billion. I want to say it's like, I don't know if it's a $14 billion industry, but Hollywood's multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, the gaming industry, which often is narrative-based to your role-playing, you're going through a story. Uh, tens, you know, t- tens of billions. It's ridiculous. Actually, more than Hollywood. If I'm, if if I remember my numbers, I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here. Uh, Instagram, I think, was valued at about was it eight or eighty billion? I can't remember what. But uh, Instagram, owned by Facebook, uh, I could look it up while we're talking, but I'm too lazy. Uh, and if this were the live, if this were the live stream, you know, one of uh, typically George, my 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 friend George in Austria would. <laughs> Look stuff up live. Unfortunately, I haven't been live streaming lately. Been doing all these uh, as pre-recorded in the studio here in Gaston Manor. Uh, but Instagram worth multiple billions. Again, people telling stories. Not always like a, a narrative like you know I did this, then I went here. But they're they're creating, they're crafting narratives about their life. They're sharing photographs, a little bit of description, and those photographs over time create a narrative about someone's life, and often not true. There's been a lot of discussion around. Uh, the veracity and the reality of some of these stories and how they create problems in society because people are comparing themselves to the stories that others are putting out about them. And, and it's creating depression, it's creating anxiety and so on. Why is it creating all those things? Because story is powerful. We're wired for story. And essentially, um, researchers have shown that when you share a narrative... When you tell a story, even if it's yourself, you're just saying, oh, yeah, hey, I got a speeding ticket. And you start going through this, the events. You recall those events. As you're sharing that story, you're kind of reliving them. And they've, they've mapped people's minds and, and the electrical activity in the mind. In the, in the areas of the brain, like maybe in a moment you're nervous or, or scared as the cop's coming up, you're fearful. Uh, then maybe the cop lets you off. There's a sense of relief. The various parts of your mind are firing. And we can see those things. If you wire someone up like a monkey in a lab, we can see what parts of the brain are firing up. It's kind of interesting. So as you relive your story by recounting it, we can see those various parts of your mind firing up that resonate with the emotions that you were feeling as you retell them. Well, here's the really interesting part, because that's not so surprising. We've all told a story, you know, you say, and then, and then she said this to me and it made me so angry. And in the moment you start to feel angry, like you're reliving it. We all know that feeling. Here's what's really fascinating. And this gets to the power of narrative that when the listener is hearing the story, there is a neurological sympathy that happens. And when we wire up a listener's brain and also wire up the teller's brain, we can see that the same parts of their minds are firing at the same time. So as she's retelling, like, I couldn't believe she said this to me and I was so angry. And we see that the anger part is 
firing up in her, in her little noggin there. And now I'm not being dismissive. Her little, her cute little noggin there, <laughs> 1950s. Uh, we can see that the guy listening to it, his anger section in his brain is also firing up in his cute little noggin. There's, there's this neural sympathy that happens, this sympathetic linking of minds as we tell a story, and that's powerful. That's why we get sucked into a movie. When we're watching a movie, we're watching a TV show, a series that we're into, we get sucked into it. We know, we know that that monster's not real. We know that that couple's not really a married couple. We know they're not really breaking up. We know that that child didn't really just fall off a cliff. But our hearts race. We feel anxiety, fear, elation. You know, the, the moment when the good guy wins, that sense of elation, like, yes, justice has been served. The bad guy just got pwned. And all is going to be right with the world. That sense is just such a good feeling. But, but there's a part of our mind that knows I'm watching a screen. This isn't real. It happens when you read a book. You read a book. I mean, how boring is a book to most people these days? I still love reading. I think reading is just oh, such a gift to mankind. But we find it kind of boring because like, oh, books, you know, I'd rather watch something on Netflix. But you read a book, you get sucked in. Like, you, you know, the good one, it's like a page turner, a pot boiler. You can't put it down. You want to know what's going to happen next. This is because of this sympathetic resonance that happens between the teller and the listener. We relive the stories that we hear we experience them as they're being told to us. And so narrative becomes a very powerful tool for branding and marketing because you're able to tell stories about a product or a service or a brand, and you can get a level of kind of resonance with your audience that you can't get by just saying, well, our floor cleaner works 37% better than the other floor cleaners out there, and it's 27 cents cheaper. Like, we don't care about that kind of stuff. Facts and figures don't mean a darn thing to us. But tell me a story about that floor cleaner. Tell me how this Italian grandma came over on the boat from Sicily uh, fleeing a famine. They're poor as anything. And she was scrubbing floors in the local bank to make a living. And all these millionaires are walking by and she's scrubbing the floor. And she thought to herself, I want to be a millionaire someday. And as she's scrubbing that floor, uh, she had a passion for chemistry. And she took night classes at the local community college to learn the basic rudimentaries of chemistry and went back and formulated her own floor cleaner that worked better than that piece of crap floor cleaner that they kept giving her to work with, all those slobs, millionaires, and, and just heartless bastards. And old great-grandma uh, Cachetti or whatever her name is comes back and by golly, she's got a better floor cleaner. And next thing you know, old grandma's a millionaire. She's moving to Beverly Hills, kids, the Beverly Hills millionaires. Uh, so, you know, we love a story like that. And, and when we hear a story like that, we want, we want in, we love it. We love the underdog story. And we're like, I love using uh, Cachetti's floor cleaner. It's the best in the world because, uh, my goodness, old, old great grandma there and it works better and so on and so forth. So, that's, that's that. So the power of narrative. Now, the reason I want to bring this up in relationship to COVID-19, kids, uh, you know, we can talk about the narrative that's been out there. But in a recent uh, business meeting discussion, the question was uh, floated, hey, you know, when, when do you think, uh, what's got to happen for us to get back to business? What's got to happen for the economies to start opening back up? What's got to happen to start seeing people, you know, interacting in commerce and trade 
consumers getting some confidence, people out there spending money. Like, when are, when are we going to get out from under this thing? And people were proffering ideas, you know, like so many vaccines need to be out there. Well, this or or maybe some regulations need to change or, you know, this is different, different. Uh, the deaths have to go down. Right? People looking at data points. And I said, look, I think all those things are true, but I think there's a different thing we should be looking at. I think what we've got to look at is the narrative that's out there. Because right now, and from early 2020 until now, we've been hearing a certain narrative that this thing is going to kill you. It is going to kill you. If you don't wear a mask, if you don't wash your hands, if you don't stay home, if you're selfish and, and, and don't do all these things, if you think of yourself first and you go out to a restaurant or you insist on shopping or whatever these things are that you do, you and everyone else is going to die. There's a narrative. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but this has really been the, sh the shorthand of the narrative. My God, COVID is going to kill you. And I said, my, ar my argument here, my observation, my argument, my guess is that when the narrative starts to change, that's when we're going to get back to business. Now, I think these data points will play into the narrative. It's how they'll tell the story. But essentially, we have to get to a place where there is a, a public narrative that, that it's safe to get back to business. Now, some of that might be all about the vaccine. And you hear some of that. If we can just get everybody vaccinated, it's going to be great. You know, if we, if we can just do that, you know, if we can get back into, out of this cold season into the warm weather, maybe that's it. Maybe two cycles and COVID's going away. But I think it's all about the narrative. And I think there's more going on here. So, uh, for instance, you, you see, I, I'm seeing the narrative change already. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing it change already. So, yes. Warp speed. There's been some criticism. We got to kick Trump as many times as we can. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah, I guess he did a good job getting a couple of vaccines out, but boy, they sure did screw up the uh, execution implementation. <laughs> it's like, okay, whatever. And I remember, I remember Obama complaining about George W. Bush for his eight years. For eight years, it was George W. Bush's fault. It was never Obama. It was never like, you know, you're eight years in, bro. At what point are you going to just say, yeah, we're not doing so good with this stuff? Uh, but, but you're seeing um, the narrative change. You're always going to get an administration pointing fingers at the last guy. That's normal. Trump did it. Uh, Obama did it. Clinton did it. It's what they do. I don't know if George Bush did that. He may have. I don't remember. I'm not saying I don't think he did. I just don't remember that. But I distinctly remember uh, Clinton. I remember Obama. I remember Trump doing that. But getting past that, I think as we look at this, the narrative is already changing. I mean, Joseph Robinette Biden was only inaugurated on the 20th. He was installed uh, on the 20th, which was Wednesday. This is Sunday. It's been four days. But already the narrative is changing. Before Biden even got inaugurated, uh, I know that Governor Cuomo, who's been a staunch, 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 fat mouth of a jackass when it comes to keeping the state locked down. I mean, he's just, he's a bully. I mean, he doesn't even give rationales. He just yells at you. If you question him, he's like, you know, you, you're an idiot. You're terrible. I'd like to punch you in the mouth. This guy, <laughs> he's just so bad. Uh, I love the guy, as you can tell. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Um, but, you know, he's just been relentlessly hard-nosed about this. N you know, no leading from the center. No, I hear your, I feel your pain. No, look, we're all in this together. It's like, if you disagree, you're a bad person. All right, fair enough. Uh, that's his style. But for almost a year now, this guy's been relentless. And then out of the blue, out of the blue, the week before Biden got inaugurated, 
He sends a tweet out saying, hey, look, we can't wait for these vaccines. We've got to start intelligently reopening business because if we don't do that, there's going to be no business left to open. We can't wait for widespread implementation of the vaccine. Now, you might say, well, you know, and I had to talk with someone. She was saying, well, you know, that's just he's starting to realize tax base and he's going to have to do some things to make changes. And that's fair. You can you can believe that. Uh, I love you, but you're wrong. But you can believe that. But I but look, this guy's known about the tax base all along. He, they know, you know, they know what happens. Any little thing they raise property tax by, you know, an eighth of a percent. They can calculate that out ad nauseum. They know all the little tiny inputs and outputs and so on, how they affect things. He's known all along that tax base is going to be an issue. You're right. I think they're at a point where it's like we can't wait anymore. It's killing them. So you're totally right about that. But this is a complete 180 for Cuomo. He's never in all this time said, look, here's what I'm shooting for. Here's the dates I'm looking at. Here's, he's always reserved for himself the dictatorial decision. He'll make the decision, the executive decision, when he's good and ready. And he's not going to give you, he's not going to show you his hand. He's not going to give you any heads up or anything. He's just going to do what he needs to do when he thinks he needs to do it. And so all along, it's been this lockdown, it's been controls, it's been, you know, we've got to have access to every aspect of your life. You know, you, you can't travel without tests, you've got to quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. You guys all know the drill. This isn't news to you. But out of the blue, we got we, we to start reopening kids. Now, this is not me making a gripe about, well, they did this to hurt Trump. Of course they did. I mean, this is politics. This is a blood sport. Politics is a blood sport. Don't kid yourself that it's not. And I could go on and complain about the fact that they destroyed your life and my life for political power. I could go on about that. We could do multiple episodes. The whole show could become about that for the next five, four, six, 12 years. Not interested. It's an interesting discussion I have once in a while. That's not why I'm talking about this. But I want to call out the fact that the narrative is starting to change. It's not just Cuomo. So there's a few things that add to the narrative right now or contribute to the existing narrative. When one of these things is the infection rate, the case rate, and so on of COVID. We've heard really high numbers, really high numbers. A second thing is the death rate. Again, astronomical numbers, just dizzying numbers. And then the other thing is just this idea of shutdowns and control measures and so on. So I've already said, hey, look, uh, one of the most hard-nosed, pugilistic, and fat-headed governors in this country, and Mike, you're being disrespectful. Yes, I am. Uh, is doing a 180 and changing his narrative. I think that means something. It's it's dramatic. Another thing is that the uh, World Health Organization, the WHO kids, uh, Pete Townsend and gang, uh, the World Health Organization came out on January 13th of this year, just about a week or almost 10, just over 10 days ago. And they released uh, what they call, what do they call this? Uh, information notice. So the WHO, WHO information notice for IVD users, 2020-05. That's the number. And the subtitle here is Nucleic Acid Testing Technologies That Use polymerase chain reaction, PCR, for detection of SARS-CoV-2. So they're talking about the, the classic testing, the PCR test that they use to detect SARS-2. Now, they're giving new guidance on how to approach this testing. 
And this new guidance is going to have a dramatic effect on the number of cases reported. So remember, testing, testing, testing. Under the Trump regime, it, everyone was screaming for testing. Trump was kind of dragging his feet on that. And then later says, hey, look, we're, we're doing so many tests. It's beautiful. We got the most tests in the world. Oh, we're doing a beautiful job with testing. We got beautiful tests. I've talked to many people. They've told me I've done a great job with testing. <laughs> I'll never make it on Saturday Night Live. That's my, that's my uh, poor man's Trump uh, impression. But, you know, but, but not just the left, but the public was screaming for testing. The media was, the news, the journalists, the political uh, combatant, combatants, and so on, the experts. So, so the WHO has come out after all this time, and they're saying, hey, look, uh, in, in this, this document, is, this notice is going out. It says, target audience, laboratory professionals, and users of IVDs. The IVD is this testing uh, approach that they, they, um, they take. And they said the purpose is to clarify information previously provided by WHO. This notice supersedes WHO information notice for in vitro diagnostic medical device, IVD, users, uh, blah, 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 version one issued December 14th. So they're saying we're updating our standards. And long and short of it, what they're saying, I'm just going to short line this for you, baseline it for you. And it's, it's quasi-technical. It's pretty short. I mean, anybody can look this up. Uh, essentially, they're saying, look, you've got to follow very carefully to get the right results. And you've got to understand if your equipment, your PCR um, equipment is at the right thresholds recommended by the manufacturer. Well, what does that mean? The way that they test for this virus is they swab you, uh, they violate you. It's horrible. I haven't done it, but I've heard people that have done it. You know, they stick this thing, they tickle your brain with the swab, they collect it, they put the genetic material, the collection of the material, not genetic, but they just put the, the uh, biological material that they scrape from your uh, back, your throat, et cetera, nasal cavity, and they cycle this thing. And, as they, and, and they go through a number of cycles. And as they cycle, they're looking, they can't see COVID in, they're not seeing COVID. They're seeing um, these nucleotides or whatever, these, there's, there are these things in that as they cycle that become visible that let you know that COVID was there or that COVID is there. There's, there's, they're not seeing the actual disease. They're seeing signs of the disease. And so what they're saying is the old guidance was kind of loosey goosey and, and manufacturers for these PCR machines that do the cycles have recommended cycles. But what has been the practice? So let's say the recommended cycles between 25 and 30. And I think it is somewhere around there, but don't, don't quote me. But it's like around 27 cycles or something. Well, the more you cycle, the more false positives because you keep amplifying. Every time you cycle, you're amplifying, amplifying, amplifying until you can see what you need to see. But if you go beyond that, you start to amplify to a point where it creates noise, false positives. You see things in there that are so amplified, they look like, my goodness, this person's got the, they got the COVID. They got the COVID. When in, and in fact, it's a dead nucleotide or something in their nuclei. I don't know how to say that. Uh, <laughs> string me up in the comments, kids. Um, that's just been cycled so much that it's given you a false positive. And what the WHO is saying now, finally, on January 13th, is that, hey, uh, we got to dial this back because I think we're overcycling these things and I think we're getting a lot of false positives. So if you guys could just start going by the manufacturer's recommended cycles, that would be great. 
So they're saying dial back the cycles. Well, if you dial back the cycles, you're going to get a lot fewer false positives. And the thing that a lot of folks don't know is the false positives are off the charts. There's a lot of false positives, a lot. And so what the who is saying, dial it back. Well, that's going to bring the number of cases down. That's a narrative buster right there. And secondly, they're saying, hey, look, if you, if you cycle this thing and somebody shows a positive for COVID, but visually doesn't have the symptoms, eh, you should probably test them again because no, no, no. And so what they're trying to do is decrease the prevalence of false claims. Most PCR assays, I'm quoting here, are indicated as an aid for diagnosis. Therefore, healthcare professionals, providers, must consider any result in combination with timing of sampling, specimen type, assay specifics, clinical observations, patient history, confirmed status of any contacts, and epidemiological information. Am I saying that right? Epidemiological information. That's better. They're saying, look, don't just run a test and say, we got a COVID, we got a live one based on the results. You've got to, it's an aid for diagnosis. It's not a statistical machine to pump out numbers. It's an aid for diagnosis. And so you've got to then do the sampling. You've got to run the test correctly. Stop over cycling. And then look at a bunch of other things. Look at things like the timing of the sampling, the specimen type was the ideal, you know, all the specifics of the assay, the clinical observations, what are you seeing? The patient's history, confirmed status of any context, like take all these other things into consideration. And the fact of the matter is we have not been doing that, folks. We have not been doing that. There's one more thing I want to throw out there. This is kind of a look forward. So with the WHO coming out saying, hey, we got to do a better job testing. Let's stop using the testing kind of just to rack up numbers. Let's dial it back and use it as an aid for diagnosis. This is a very unassuming document. This document is going to be a bomb drop. You watch. There's going to be talk about this document. You're going to see, and I don't think it's going to be loud. I think there's going to be subtle changes underneath the surface. You're going to start to see a drop in confirmed cases. You're going to start to see a drop in confirmed cases. And, and you may see what will be interesting to watch is if that drop starts to happen across the globe and not in the U.S., then, then there's something political going on behind the scenes. There's a reason that we are not adopting the WHO's guidance. Now, remember, the Democrats are the party of science. They made sure to tell us that. They love the science, the science that a man can be a woman, as a matter of fact. That's a great example of how much they love the science. But they love the science. And so it'll be interesting to see, but I believe they're going to start embracing the WHO's um, new edict because I think it's going to give them cover to start dialing back the emergency. When you've got fewer cases, you've got less fear. So you've got governors like Cuomo, and I think others are going to be following, saying, we got to start opening back up again. You've got the WHO saying, look, let's start, let's change the way we're testing, let's do a better job testing. Let's be smarter about it. Let's be uh, in, in, more integrative. Let's use this as a diagnostic tool, but not as a statistical generator to say, oh my God, look at the numbers. And then lastly, what I think you're going to start to see is a change in the way that we start to tally COVID deaths or we qualify a COVID death. So from the beginning of this thing, you hear these numbers, 400,000 dead, and it just is, it's 
mind blowing, mind blowing. It's just, it's just, it guts you 400,000. It's just a horrific number. But as I've said in previous episodes, if you take a little bit of time and you get underneath the hood of this thing, kids, you get your calculator out there and your slide ruler and your glasses with tape in the middle and you start doing the numbers, it's a different picture than what they're painting. Now, first of all, uh, the flu has completely gone away last year and this year. There's no flu. So what is that all about? Is, is it that COVID and the flu, it's kind of like the triune nature of God. You can never see the God, the Father, and God, the Son in the same room at the same time. Like, what, 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 <laughs> what is this? By the way, that, I'm not trying to talk about orthodox theology here. It's like, what is it about the flu and COVID that they can't coexist? Or is, is COVID, did it beat up the flu? It, it vanquished the flu and said, I am the overlord of, of uh pulmonary pneumatic issues in the human body. There's, there can only be one. This is Highlander now. They're going to duke it out to see who gets to be uh, killer supreme. There's no flu. Well, that tells you something. There has to be flu. Usually we get 20, 30, 60,000 uh, people a year easily that die from the flu every single year. We have no flu deaths this year. That's kind of strange. Uh, heart Deaths by heart failure. One of the leading causes of heart disease and heart-related issues, um, those have dropped significantly. And at the same time, this, the same number that those have dropped, well, COVID deaths have increased by the same exact number. There's a, there's a one-for-one ratio here. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you exactly why. What's happening is someone has a heart attack and they die. And we're COVID testing them. And we're COVID testing them under the old World Health Organization guidance, which means we're cycling the hell out of that shit until we get some type of result. Now, I'm not saying this is done uh, on purpose, and I'm not saying that this is some sinister plot. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is we're using guidance, we're, and we're just cataloging, we're, we're preferring. If, if, if you're dying with COVID, you could drown in a pool, you could have a heart attack, you could just be elderly and pass away, you're 99, but you die. Not meaning COVID literally killed you, but you just had it when you died. It's in your system. We are electing, we're choosing to list the cause of death as COVID versus any other causes. So if you take a lot of those out of the system, now look, some people have heart issues and COVID pushes them over the edge. Like they would have maybe made it. I've got a weak heart, but I probably would have made it. That's a COVID death. I get that. I'm not saying like anyone with a heart issue, it should be that instead. But when someone is dying, car accident, heart disease, cancer, and so on, and, they, and they've got COVID when they die, we're choosing to call that a COVID death. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a shift in that methodology and that convention where we're going to start to be more judicious about who we list as a COVID death. I think we're going to become more judicious. And I think what's going to happen is the number of cases are going to decrease I think the number of deaths to COVID are going to decrease. I think these are going to be dramatic. I think you're going to see widespread implementation of the vaccine because people are just scared out of their wits and, and people just can't wait to get this vaccine. They're, it's almost like the cavalry is coming. I hear people talk about it like it's the second coming of Christ. They get this excited, wistful, hopeful, I can't wait to see the allied troops liberate uh, our little Vichy French village. I mean, it's that kind of it's that kind of 
tone. And so I think people are lining up to get this. Now, a lot of people are skeptical. I talk to a lot of people are like, eh, I don't mind if somebody else gets it first. Uh, I can just kind of see how this thing plays out. Like it, it kind of went through awful quick. I'm not sure how much they tested it. So, you know, there are a lot of skeptics, a lot of people that are just prudent, or cautious, going to kind of you know, hang back a little bit. I don't mind giving my spot to somebody. They want to go first. I, I I can step aside. I could be a gentleman. Just say, no, after you, I insist. <laughs> but I think you start to see these things come together and you've got a narrative that's changed. We beat COVID. We beat it. The vaccine, the genius, the science, the technology, the will of the American people, the human spirit, the great leadership from the Democratic Party, et cetera, et cetera. I think, though, you change some of these things and you're able to support that story. And I think then you get the narrative tellers because this, this is the other part. It's like people are so scared right now. How are you going to get them to embrace the narrative? But I'll go back to where I opened when we started talking about narrative. We all love a good story. I think there are people that know in their knower, deep in their hearts, that COVID is not as scary as they're telling us, but they're just enjoying participating in the story, that, that, that kind of resonance, that neural link that happens, that sympathetic neural link. People are enjoying being part of this story. I, they can tell people, I was there, I did it, I masked up, I shut down, I spit on the people that, that uh, you know, I reported the neighbors that were trying to kill us all by just living their damn lives. How dare they? People like participating in the narrative. They want to be in it. They want to feel it. They want to experience it. And I think as the narrative changes that we beat this thing, People are going to be celebrating. They're going to take part. Even if they, even if there's a part that says, I think this is BS, they're going to participate in the narrative, just like you and I enjoy watching a Netflix movie with our loved one on a Friday night. Slice of pizza, maybe a little uh, soda pop or something. Hey, it's a good time. People are hungry for narrative. We want to hear a story, and we want to be part of that story. And so... Mark my words, you heard it here first. And if you didn't hear it here first, where are, you, where are you listening to this kind of stuff? Who else is telling you what Uncle Mike tells you? I'm here to tell you the truth as I understand it, the truth as I've grasped it, the truth as I've searched it out and acquired it. And this is, this is not necessarily the truth. I'm not lying to you, but this is what I think. This is my projection. If I'm looking forward, this is what I think is going to happen. I'd like to know what you think. What do you think? Hit me up. Hit me up on Twitter. Yeah, I haven't deleted my Twitter account. I'm not that active, but I do watch it. You can hit me up via my website. Just go to MikeGaston.com, G-A-S-T-I-N. The contact form there, throw me an email. Let me know what you think. I'd love to know your take on this. There's some of you that know me personally. You will call me. You will email me. I always love hearing your input. I want to hear your take on this. But for those of you that have not connected with me, hit me up. Hit me up on Twitter. Go to my website. You can sign up. I'm going to be doing a newsletter. I keep threatening. You know, Sign up. There's this newsletter sign up on the website. It will not spam you. I will not try to sell you a get-rich-quick scheme. But at some point soon, in the very near future, I'm going to be putting out some high-quality emails that you don't want to miss out on. So sign up there, and uh, you can even connect with me on LinkedIn if you'd like to. Guys, I hope you know this, but I love you all. I'm really grateful for this audience. I'm grateful for the fun time, the interaction. I'm grateful that you spend some time, that you give me 
your most valuable resource, not your money, not your talents, but your time. That's something you can't get back. So I hope that you found this useful and I look forward to seeing and talking to you guys in the next episode.